Morning, church. Take your Bibles and let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. Our scripture reading today will just be one verse. This one verse is loaded with beautiful biblical truth that only tells us what Jesus is like, what the church is supposed to be like. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this text tells us by implication what you are to be like. Here's God's word. John 1:14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth This is God's word I want you to think with me of a moment in your lifetime where you said this statement You just had to be there. Now, I don't mean that moment when you're telling a story and you know it's tanking really fast and you had to get out of it, you know what I mean? Like you're telling someone a story and people are like, what? And you're like, well, you just had to be there, right? I'm not talking about that kind of scenario. I mean where you're describing something that is indescribable. Maybe a sunset over the Grand Canyon. Maybe the sense of laughter and joy when you're out with your friends at Mass Avenue having dinner together. Maybe you were at the football game recently and you saw all the Purdue students just storm the field with Tyler Strong on their hearts. Maybe you were at a wedding and you know a backstory with the bride and groom and you saw that bride coming down and you were just like, man, it was unbelievable. Maybe you were um, in the gallery in a judge's chamber or in a courtroom and you heard the clack of the gavel as the adoption for your friend was finalized. Or maybe you were in the middle of singing a song with a group of people, maybe even this morning when you just sensed the Lord's presence in a special way, or maybe you were in the middle of a sermon and you knew like the word that was being spoken, like there was a, a human person explaining the scriptures, but you know when that word landed on your heart, it was like God is speaking to me. And there was just this sense that you had to be there. It's that emotion of wow, the emotion of there's something else that's going on here. You need to know in the Bible, there's a word for those kind of moments. It's the word glory. When it feels, and when it happens, that God shows up and there's something otherworldly in that moment, The Bible often uses the word glory. The idea is of splendor and weightiness, of honor and importance. Those are moments of glory. We're back in John after a three-week break, hearing from Sam Alberry, and then taking two weeks to talk about our focus on unreached people groups. And today we're in a text that is sort of like the lightning strike moment Of glory. It's almost as if John, when writing verse 14, says, You had to be there. Like we saw his glory. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what you need to know is that this verse, this little verse, is packed with important biblical truths, not only about Jesus but also with sweeping implications for how we do church. 
and important applications for how you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if in fact you are one. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what this text does is it helps you understand what is Jesus about, helps you understand what the church is supposed to be about, and helps you know what every follower of Jesus is supposed to be about, even if they aren't perfect, which they aren't. This shows you the target, and my hope is you'll be able to hear this message today, and there'll be something within you that says, I want that, and you'll become a follower of Jesus today. So in this text, we're going to see four key words that relate to who Jesus is, four words that connect to how John portrays Jesus, and then how we need to think about him, and then, by implication, how we ought to live. So the question I want to answer is this, what does it mean that Jesus came? What does it mean that he came in the flesh? What does it mean that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? So here's the first word, there's four. The first word is the word humility. The text says, and the word became flesh. Now notice John doesn't say the son of God became flesh. He doesn't say Jesus became flesh. No, no, no. He says the word became flesh. If you've been with us in our study of John so far, this should sound familiar. Although we've not heard this word, word for a while, the first time we heard it was in John chapter one. In fact, look up at verse one and you'll see how prevalent this word, word is. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now we know that John is talking about Jesus, but he uses this word, concept in order to do something important. What he's doing is John is taking a prevalent cultural idea, something that everybody would have known about, and he's embedding it with Christian meaning. In John's day, the concept of the word was regarded as sort of the internal workings of the human soul. It sort of defined both human beings and the reality of who they were, but it also defined sort of the essence of the meaning of the universe. So if you're, this is an example, if you're a Star Wars fan and you're proud of it, no, if you're a Star Wars fan, think of it as the force, okay? If you, um, if you saw the movie Black Panther, think of it as vibranium, okay? Or in our own culture, think of it as liberty. So we have the Statue of Liberty. And on Tuesday, when you go to vote, 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 and use the God-given responsibility that you have as a member of this republic, you get to embrace the liberty that you've been given for living in this country. And so liberty is the same kind of idea. We love the liberty concept. So this is what the word is in John's day. And he takes this word idea and he's, he's helping us to understand that this central defining reality in the universe is none other than Jesus, he was there in the beginning, he was in relationship with God, he was fully God, he, he was the light and life to mankind, he shone in the darkness, and even though the darkness didn't comprehend it, or understand it, or overcome it, the word now becomes flesh. So John is saying everything that's so amazing and powerful and otherworldly about this idea of word, it now comes right into humanity. And this has huge ramifications. Ramification number one is that because Jesus was a man, John wants us to also know 
that he was much more. He was God in the flesh, such that when John saw him heal people and when he heard his teaching, when he saw Jesus get in the grill of the Pharisees, he wasn't just dealing with some rabbi or some prophet. This was God in the flesh. And when he died and rose again from the dead, he did so because he was God. And John wants you to believe not only that Jesus came, but John wants you to believe, and you must believe, that Jesus was in fact the Son of God in order to be a Christian. The second thing is that in order for Jesus' death to be applied to human beings, he had to become one of us. In order for the the payment of our sins to be made in order for God to balance the scales of justice with all that we have done. The only way for that to happen is for a sacrifice to be made that's one of us. And Jesus, who perfectly obeys, never sinned in any way, his righteousness is then imputed or it's given to those who receive him because he died in our place. And the only way he can die in our place is if he is one of us. What's more, this God in the flesh, this word in the flesh, demonstrates the way in which God moves. That he's full of strength and full of power, and yet he comes in weakness. So central to the whole idea of Christianity is the idea that the infinite took on limitations, that the limitless took on human form, that God came down and in his humiliation there was then redemption. And the effect of this then forth is that it elevates humility as one of the key elements of true Christianity. Understand this, if you're a follower of Jesus, humility is not optional. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you know what he did, and you know what he's like, humility is the essence of what it means to become Christ-like. When you become more like Jesus, you are not more full of yourself. You are more full of him. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 2. Just listen to these words. Now, when I read this, some of you are going to be very familiar with this text, but I want you to think. Think of your conversations last week. Think of how you treated people. Think of the text that you sent. Think of the emails. Think of how you conducted yourself in a conference room or a boardroom. Think, think of how you interacted with your children, with your friends, how you engaged with your roommate, how you hung out with your friends in your fraternity. Just ask yourself this question. Does this verse fit? Here's what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grabbed a hold of, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's why this is important. You need to have this mindset because this week you're gonna be tempted to make much of yourself. Something's gonna happen, someone's gonna get in your space, and you're gonna be like, who do you think you are? You won't say that, at least not out loud. But inside, you'll be like, that guy took my parking spot. Like, you own the parking spot, right? You'll get in your car, and you're all excited about this vehicle. You're driving down the road. You're like, check out my Honda Accord. And all this thing. You pull out the new latest iPhone. You'll be like, check it out. And all this is about you. 
See a coworker is trying to get ahead, jealousy rears its ugly head. Your spouse begins to say something to you. Hey, honey, I got something to talk to you about. I don't know if you, and immediately you're like, don't get in my space. You have a friend who notices a little pattern in your life. They're like, hey, can we talk a little bit? And immediately this defensive thing kicks in and it's as though you begin to beat your chest and say, don't tell me I'm not important because I'm important. The Bible says that's exactly counterintuitive to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And part of the reason we need to understand who Jesus is and what he's like is because lurking within the heart of everyone, even after you come to faith in Christ, is this unbelievable penchant to not be concerned about other people, but to only be concerned about ourselves. What about me? What about my feelings? What about my issues? What about my wants? What about my desires? And here is the Son of God who empties himself, and he becomes like us in order to redeem us. So church, listen to me. Humility is not only the means by which redemption was accomplished, humility is the path of righteousness for all who believe in Jesus. The more and more you grow in becoming Christ-like, the more and more aware you will be of the death knell of pride. Humility. Secondly, intimacy. The word became flesh, I love this, and dwelt among us. I'm so thankful that we're just going really slow through this text. Some of you may have thought it was crazy, it probably is, but I mean, this little phrase, dwelt among us, is so loaded with meaning. It means that God in the flesh comes near. It means that he lives among his people. This, this word in the original language, dwelt, is connected to an Old Testament concept. You could translate it this way, that the word tabernacled among us. The word set up his camp in our camp. Or Eugene Peterson, who passed away in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, said, the word moved into the neighborhood. John knew what he was doing when he chose that word. He was connecting the life of Jesus to the Old Testament metaphor and the model of the tabernacle. Got this whiteboard, I'm gonna show you a few things here. The first thing you'll see is that I'm not an artist. <laughs> in, in, in Numbers chapter two and three, we see the model of the tabernacle and the way in which it was set up. And we learn in the Old Testament that there was this tabernacle and then around the tabernacle were where the, the Levites set their camp. And then after that, the tribes of Israel arranged themselves in a particular order such that all of them encircled the tabernacle. And the idea and the beautiful thing about this model is that in the camp of Israel, God comes. He pitches his tent among his own people. God is there, and that has three ramifications. The first, it means that God has a presence among his people. The glory of God descends, the people see that he is here. This is the same God who dwelt in the top of Mount Sinai with thundering and lightning and smoke. This is the same God who's now living right in the middle of their camp, and that had implications for how they live. The reason the Old Testament law was given was because God's in the middle of our camp. We need to be this way because God is here. He's present here among us. The second thing related to the tabernacle and the presence was the idea of atonement. 
It was inside this tabernacle once a year that the blood was placed on the altar and the people were forgiven of their sins. And so atonement is central to the idea of the tabernacle. And then finally, there's also the idea of revelation, that Moses goes inside the tent of meeting and the Bible says that he spoke with God as a man speaks with his friend and his face shone with radiant display that he had been with God and the tabernacle was this beautiful convergence of God with us, God forgiving us, God speaking to us. And John says, when it comes to that model, that's Jesus. He comes as the new tabernacle to the new people of Israel. He dwells among them. He shows us what God is like. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. He shows us what God is like. He then reveals the Father's will in his teaching and his authority and what he says and how he conducts himself. He demonstrates the substance of what God is like. And then this word in the flesh, God-man, offers himself and becomes the ultimate sacrifice. So in his dwelling among us, John wants us to see that Jesus becomes this beautiful example of God tabernacling among his people. God with us. The word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know that's not just about Jesus alone, but that's what God calls believers to do? Do you know he calls you to be incarnational? He calls us as a church to be incarnational? One of the reasons that we are taking up money for this Christmas offering is that there are people who can be incarnational to the refugees coming out of Syria to hear the name of Jesus. We can't go there, but we can help facilitate those who are there. There needs to be real people to deliver real food, to talk about the real gospel, and it takes people to go into those spaces to declare the gospel. Same thing we're doing in Brookside. People moving into the neighborhood starting up businesses, starting up Bible studies, planted a church in that area. Why? Because we want to be incarnational. One of the reasons we plant churches, why we have Fishers, and why we have Castleton and Greenwood, why we have Pike. Am I forgetting one? No, I got them all. I got so many kids, I can't even know their names anymore, so yeah. <laughs> Fishers and Castleton, Greenwood and Pike, yeah, that's right. We've got four churches. It's because in those individual localities, those pastors and those people are better able to contextualize the gospel because church is best, listen, when it's personal, incarnational, missional, and close. And people can drive here, sure they can. But when you invite a neighbor to come to church and you say, my church is 45 minutes away, they go, for real? And there may be good reasons why you drive. You ought to keep driving. But the fact of the matter is that's a barrier. And so by putting churches more closely located to where people live, it opens the door for us to think through how do we incarnate the gospel. And by the way, this is what you're supposed to do at work. This is what you should do in your neighborhood. The reason you are there is to incarnate, to be in the flesh with the people around you. This is the way that the gospel works. This is the way you grew spiritually. If I were to ask you what are the most significant impacts or influences in your life, my guess is you'll tell me people, people who you knew, who you watched, people who bled, whose hearts were broken. You watched how they followed Jesus, and because of that, you know how to follow Jesus. Why? Because word and flesh and proximity matter. That's how Jesus came. It's what the church is called to do. It's what we're called to do. It's what you're called to do. Intimacy, humility, Third, 
The word uniqueness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and I love this, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Imagine what it must have been like for John to write those words. He saw the healings, he saw the teaching of Jesus, he saw what Jesus did, and when John says, we saw his glory, he's talking about the things that he saw. For instance, if you look over in John chapter two and verse 11, John says about this turning of the water into wine. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. In other words, when the water turned to wine, there was something about that the disciples and those who were at the wedding looked at it and were like, what? And there was something about his teaching that people were like, he speaks with one who has authority and not like the scribes. When it says we've seen his glory, this glory is the same idea that was observed at Mount Sinai, same thing that came down in the tabernacle and the temple. The word glory can be translated as splendor or grandeur. Tim Keller describes it as weightiness. I like that. The idea is that it's something so substantive that when it comes into the room, it displaces all other things. So it would be like if somebody who had glory, say somebody famous was in our service or around our church campus today, um, my guess is you'd be talking to your friends, but you'd see this famous person, you'd stop and be like, their, their, their glory displaced that conversation. That's what glory does. It displaces, it's weighty, and it displaces all of the things. And what John is saying is that the glory of Jesus displaced all other realities. It's so beautiful that you don't want to leave it. You want to be there. In fact, that's what happened in the transfiguration. Luke chapter 9 tells us that Peter, James, and John, they were with Jesus one night when he was praying, and suddenly Jesus was joined by Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine this moment? If you're a, if you're a Jewish person, I mean, here's like LeBron James and Larry Bird, right? Right there. Or choose whoever you want, your basketball heroes. You have these heroes of the faith, Moses, Elijah, and they saw the glory of Jesus. In fact, so much so that Peter said, let's just make some tents and stay here. Do you know that when you see Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth and you stand before him, you won't want anything else? It's hard to believe there won't be marriage, there won't be children, there won't be sexuality. And it must be that even the, the highest joys in life are just little foretastes of the beauty of what Jesus is like. Because the Bible says that that glorious reality will become the singular thing that we love and want. And it must be that that glory so attractive, so glorious, and so fulfilling is the very thing that John is talking about, that we saw his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. What John is saying is there's no one like him. 
By the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is essentially how somebody becomes a follower of Jesus. You have to believe that Jesus alone can forgive you of your sins. You have to believe that what he said is true, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. You have to come to a point where you're done with you and say, look, I I need Christ to take control of my, my, my life. I need cleansing from the inside out. John says, we saw him in his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. And then we find this fourth and final thing, full of grace and truth. Here we find perfection. What's interesting is that this description, full of grace and truth, is is how John is trying to capture what the glory was. Like, we beheld his glory. I saw his glory. He's God. I saw him. He's the son. He's the only son from the Father. Well, what does that glory look like? John says, full of grace and truth. That's what he says. And again, what he's doing, he's pulling in Old Testament metaphors and ideas. When when God met with Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and God passed in front of Moses, he said this. He, He cried out to Moses in terms of who God is. He said, the Lord, the Lord a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, there's the grace, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can also translate that Hebrew word as truthfulness. So steadfast love in the Old Testament is the idea of grace and faithfulness is connected to God's truthfulness. So when John says he was full of grace and truth, he's distilling the essence of what the glory of God is like. He's distilling the essence of what God is like. He's distilling the essence of what righteousness is like. You want to know what it means to be godly? You want to know what it means to be righteous? You want to know what it means to be a Christian? It is that you are full of the same thing that Jesus was full of, namely grace and truth. It's not just grace and it's not just truth. It's full of grace and truth. A number of years ago, I read a little book by Randy Alcorn called The Grace and Truth Paradox, and in that book, he made this statement, we want to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. And that has informed a lot of how I think about ministry, how I think about the Christian life. Full of grace and truth. We want to do both. Then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, God's goal in your life is for you to be incrementally changed from one degree of glory to another. So that means that by 10 o'clock tonight when you go to bed or later, the goal is for you to have made incremental progress in looking more and more like Jesus. The question then is, what does that glory look like? What does it mean, one degree of glory to another? Well, if we understand John 1, verse 14 correctly, it means this, that you look more and more like Jesus by understanding the beautiful tension and paradox of both grace and truth. And the more that you grow, the more you know the importance of both of these realities. Let me show this to you. As I think about what it means to be a person committed to grace and truth, I think of it along a a two by two square, and this is helpful just for my thinking because sometimes we are so linear in how we think about things that we think it's an either or choice. So think of it this way. You have truth on one side of the equation 
or one aspect, one axis, and grace on the other. And some people tip towards grace, and some of us tip towards truth. And if I had you raise your hand, we would see. And, and oftentimes, uh, if a husband and wife are married, there's one grace person, one truth person, friends, it's kind of the same thing. And what we find here is that grace and truth is an important dynamic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. So he is the full manifestation of both grace and truth. Now think with me, the complete opposite of this would be someone who has no grace and no truth. So that would be, instead of grace, all judgment, and what's the opposite of truth? Lies. So who is full of judgment and full of lies? Satan, very good. Satan. So Satan is the complete opposite of grace, of, of, of Christ. He's not full of grace. He's not full of truth. And then here's the other dynamic. Some of you grew up in homes that were all truth and no grace. You're down in this category over here, full with legalism, rules, and total control. And here's what happens. You grew up in a home like that, you were like, we're not doing these rules. Like, these rules don't work. These rules created rebellion. And here's what often we do. We go from here, and instead of going here, we go here to the other side of the equation. So we go to, let's call it license, with no control. You grew up in a home where your parents had all kinds of rules, then you have kids, and you're like, free-range parenting, baby, right? <laughs> We're gonna ask our kids, what do you wanna have the rules in our house be, you know? Yeah. What time do you wanna go to bed? Because my parents told me 10 o'clock and it completely messed me up. So what do you think, sweetie? And you had the whole universe revolving around your kids. And let me tell you, that's a train wreck waiting to happen, right? Or you went from one church that was all controlling, so you go way to the other side of another church, and then you go, wait, 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 this isn't gonna work either. And then you begin to think, church doesn't work at all. Now, church works but not when we are moving back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Some of you approach dating this way, okay? You grew up and it was like free range dating. And you were like, that didn't work. That created all kinds of bad things. So you moved all the way to the other side. You didn't just kiss dating goodbye. You kissed anything goodbye, right? And you're like, we're going to find the kid. We're going to talk to his parents. We're going to sign a contract. We're going to pick him and our kids are going to like it, right? That's how you went. You went all the way to the other side. And what you find out, that doesn't work either. And the trouble is that most of us are bouncing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And by the way, this is not spirituality. There's man-made rules built into this. There's man-made, there's just as many rules over here as there are over here, except the rule over here is there ain't no rules. That's the rule, right? The rule over here is do what I want, or you do what I say. This is I'm gonna do whatever I want. And the fact of the matter is both quadrants are just as selfish and they pull us this direction. So eventually some of you would end up giving up saying, you know what, grace doesn't work, truth doesn't work, church doesn't work, Jesus doesn't work, nothing works. And you've just about thought, you know what, I'm going the other direction as it relates to what it means to even believe that Christ can actually make a difference. And the hope is to be full of grace and truth. What does that mean? It means that you equally love grace and you equally love truth, that you don't have a false dichotomy, that you look at how Jesus deals with the woman at the well and he's full of grace, but he's also full of truth. But for her, he tips it on the side of grace. So some of you have children in your home, you have to tip it to the side of grace. Grace and truth doesn't mean 50-50. It doesn't mean like, hey, it's gotta be 50% grace, 50% truth. Sometimes when you're dealing with a friend or a child or someone, they need 90% truth and 10% grace. And that's the gracious, truthful thing that you can do for them. 
By the way, just remember that when someone comes to you and they have to talk to you about something that's wrong with your life, don't be throwing this message in their face. Like, man, that'd be 50% grace and truth because you didn't, no, no, no. Just humility, embrace the fact that a brother or sister loves you enough to speak truth into your life and they're trying to be gracious by risking the relationship by getting into your life. Or take the rich young ruler, Jesus over here, gets in his grill and talks to him about his love of possessions, and Jesus is very direct, and he does so, though, to try and help him to head a right and gracious direction. And the point of this is that following Jesus means incremental growth in our understanding of what it means to embrace both grace and truth. Healthy churches look like churches who are filled with lots of grace and lots of truth. It can't be either or, it has to be both. Some of you, that drives you crazy because you'd like it to be linear. You'd like spirituality to be something, tell me where I'm here, then I'm here, and then I'm here, because there's no rule book. When do you apply grace? When do you apply truth? When do you speak words that are strong and rebuking? When do you speak words of comfort? And it's not as easy as just to go this, 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 and this, and part of the reason is, if we could figure it out, we would worship the model instead of falling at the face of Jesus and saying, I don't know how to do this, Christ, will you help me? This is why the Holy Spirit has been given to us in order for us to think through God. In order for us to think through, God, help me with my child. Help me with my friend. I don't know in this breakfast meeting, do I speak grace? Do I speak truth? And the Bible promises when you show up, he's going to help you. And when you walk away from the meeting, you won't think, I nailed it. You're going to think, he helped me. He helped me. He helped me to balance grace and truth. And when God, by his spirit, begins to work, you'll know it wasn't you in your little formula. It was the presence of the risen Christ who showed up and helped somebody to be convicted over their needs. And finally, when you begin to love this and you see this grace and truth thing happening in your life, if what I'm saying resonates within you, you ought to thank God. Because what I'm talking about makes no sense to someone whose eyes have been blinded to the reality of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you understood anything of what I said, friend, you ought to know that right now God may be lifting the blinders of your eyes to see. And when God does that, that means he's calling you to become a follower of him. Don't resist that. Don't push that away. For those of you who are Christ followers, it means that spiritual growth looks like understanding more and more the beautiful tension of grace and truth. And it means that you're changed one degree of glory to another day by day. It means every day you walk grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth. And then you get down to be about 60, 70, 80 years old. You look back on your life and you're like, oh my goodness, look at this thing that God has done in my life. And what's crazy is you look more like Jesus than you did 10 years ago, 30 years ago, or 10 minutes ago. That means that your drive home can be more grace and truth oriented than it was coming to church. And no one's wife or husband texted me, just so you know, okay? (laughs) It means that your activity at work can look more like grace and truth as you become more and more like Jesus. And friend, when that happens, listen to me, you'll stand back and look at your life and go, Wow, that's God. You'll see the beautiful, transformative work of the Spirit. And no, God did that. You won't be able to explain it. You won't be able to define it. All you know, something happens when Jesus shows up. Because the word was made flesh, and his glory 
is full of grace and truth. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's some in this room today that just need to feel the beauty of your grace that their sins are not only forgiven, but you love them even in their brokenness. And God, there's others in this room who need a really strong wake-up call to almost imagine you sitting right next to them going, brother, I love you, but this has got to change. And so would you apply your word as you can by your spirit to people on either axis? Would you give friends wisdom to know how to help friends that they care about and speak gracious and truthful words? Give parents gracious and truthful words? Give our elders and small group leaders, adult big group leaders, grace and truth. God, make us a people who look like Jesus because we love that he came and this is what he was like. Forgive us for our legalism. Forgive us for our licentiousness. Forgive us for trusting in our own control. We want to just open our hands and say, Jesus, we trust you. And thank you that when you do it, we'll be able to look back and say it was you who made it happen. So help us, Lord. And thank you for the great example that you have been, Jesus. We want to look like you. We pray this in your name.